Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 214, A Dark Day for the German Navy. Last time, Admiral Johann Gunther Lutjens of the German Navy had taken the battleship Bismarck and the heavy cruiser Prince Eugene out to the Atlantic to sink goods and supplies heading for Britain. This outing, called Operation Rhinobung, saw the end of the British battlecruiser HMS Hood. But then, due to his own damage and a few other factors, Lutjens turned his two warships back to France. However, Churchill, who had tried to give the Admiralty everything it needed, went apoplectic when he was told of the loss of the Hood, and he reacted accordingly. The damaged battleship Rodney, on its way to the American East Coast for repairs, was ordered to turn around, per the Prime Minister, to add to Home Fleet Commander Admiral Tovey's offensive capabilities. Next, Force H, which included the carrier Ark Royal, was ordered to leave Gibraltar and head north. As for Lieutenant Commander Norman Denning at OIC, or Operational Intelligence Center, which coordinated efforts between decryption units such as the Government Code and Cipher School and the Staff and Command Officers Planning Operations, he was already sleeping under his desk. Hell, most of them connected were. Dedicated? Yes. Exhausted to the point of making a mistake? Also yes. As it was Empire Day, May 24th, all attached to the covered events were exhausted and downhearted. Could the day have gotten any worse? The answer to that is always yes. At the end of the day, Hut 4 realized that Bismarck's control station was now in Paris and no longer in Wilhelmshaven. Paris was also the location of the German Navy's Group West headquarters. So, if that was the case, and the Bismarck was damaged, or if Luchens wanted to come home for any reason, he would head southeast to make for France. Mistake one for the British, but then Luchens decided to match that. As he had lost his pursuers, he sent a long signal to his superior early the next day. Of course, the Admiralty picked this up, but those at Bletchley could not read it that fast. Still, the location of the signal was determined. And yes, Luchens was heading southeast. Now, to let Admiral Tovey know so he could pursue him and finish him off. But that's not what happened. Perhaps it was the fatigue or one of the oldest mistakes humans can make. The Admiralty had figured it out and so assumed that others knew what they knew or soon would. Either way, the Admiralty sent not the conclusion to locating the source of the signal, but only the map references. And perhaps fearing this may be picked up, they sent the message encoded in such a way that perplexed Toby's staff. So they, his staff, plotted the location as best they could and headed in the opposite direction. North, not to the southeast. Then this zaniness went to another level as the Admiralty watched the battleships of the home fleet sail north all that day, without saying anything. They assumed that Tovey had updated information, as he was, the man on the scene, so not once sent a message along the lines of, hey, share your thoughts with us, as we have firm intel that he is heading southeast. No, not once. And adding to this, Tovey sent his destroyer, Somali, which had been with the Rodney, home 
to refuel, thus further weakening his own hand. Now, hang on for this next part. The people in Hut 6 decrypted Luftwaffe and army signals. One message that morning that was decoded was from the chief of staff to the Luftwaffe general Hans Jeschonik, who was in Greece. He did not have a son, but clearly some relative of his, that he cared about, was aboard the Bismarck, and so he was asking, where was it going, i.e. into harm's way? As this was a general asking, Luftwaffe command made a copy of Luchin's signal from that early morning of May 25th and put it in the Luftwaffe Enigma code to pass it on to Athens, where the general was. Of course, Bletchley got this and knew it was important, but could not read the position of the ship or in what direction it was heading. This didn't matter. The game was now afoot. The cryptographers tore through the pile of original naval signals that were still unread. Eventually, they found it, but they still could not read it. Now, these men and women had been at this for some time, and by now, they had learned the patterns enough to realize that the operator had probably gotten something wrong. Based on this theory, they tested out a few mistakes that might have made his or her signal turn out like this, as this was Nazi Germany, it was probably a he, and their testing finally struck upon the mistake. So when they corrected it, the message was in the clear. Right in front of them, on paper, was Bismarck's position, but more importantly, her course. Still, this had been a crazy 24 hours, so better safe than sorry. A Catalina flying boat was ordered up on the morning of May 26th, and sure enough, she found the Bismarck. Not accompanied by the Prince Eugene, and she was heading for Brest, and trailing oil. Now, let's take this up a notch. By now, even Admiral Tovey realized something was off. He radioed the Admiralty seeking instructions, which is when the entire story was revealed. Putting anger aside, the question was now, was it too late to chase the Bismarck down and finish her off? The answer was yes. The distance was too great, and Tovey's ship itself was low on fuel. He certainly could not race at speed to overtake his adversary, which was true enough. But perhaps someone else could slow down the wounded German battleship, one of the two largest that Germany had ever built. The carrier Ark Royal was ordered to make two attempts to attack Luchens with torpedoes, and the two attempts were made. Ordered by H-Force Commander Sir James Somerville, the first attack, sadly, went after the cruiser Sheffield, a British vessel that was trailing the Bismarck by some one mile. And the second torpedo attack, launched on the evening of May 26, had missed. Yet, it did not miss. Suddenly, the Bismarck started turning to the north. Turns out the second torpedo hit had hit the rudder and bent her. Now, remember the Germans could read the British naval signals as well, so Luchens quickly knew that Tovey was bearing down on him at speed. The German admiral sent out signals freely now, he had nothing to lose, asking for anyone to bring him fuel. This would allow him to head for France at speed if he could get the rudder fixed. It was the damn oil leak that was fouling things up that had gotten him to this point, and really all he needed was to get close enough to France to be under the Luftwaffe's air arm 
But that wasn't going to happen with a damaged rudder. More signals came to Luchin's. The King George V battleship and the Rodney were heading towards him, pell-mell. Meanwhile, the Bismarck was just going in slow circles. About ten hours before the British warships arrived on the scene, Luchin's received another message. It read, To C&C afloat. I thank you in the name of the entire German people, Adolf Hitler. To the crew of the battleship Bismarck, all Germany is with you. All that can still be done will be done. Your devotion to duty will fortify our people in their struggle for existence. Adolf Hitler. Of course, this message was decrypted by Bletchley on May 29th. But that was in the future. At the moment, there was no help for Luchens and the Bismarck. Then it was Luchens' turn to send a message to Brest and Berlin. It read, Ship unmanageable. We shall fight to the last shell. Long live the Fuhrer. Believe it or not, this did not soothe the savage beast within de Fuhrer. No one likes losing a battleship, certainly one that cost about 200 million Reichsmarks to build. Now, this battle could have gone dozens of different ways, but here's what happened. When that second group of planes had finished dropping their torpedoes, the one fated to damage the Bismarck's rudder, Luchens fired at the shadowing Sheffield. It was all he could do. The first shot was a mile off, literally, but not the second. It landed close enough to cause splinter damage and kill three men, wounding two more. Four shots more would come at the Sheffield, but none of those were harmful. So she laid down smoke and got out of range. Point is, British excitement about the hunt now turned to anger. Meanwhile, Captain Philip Vian's group of five destroyers, which had been sent south, were ordered to keep contact throughout the night as their larger sister ships raced south. And Vian had a specific definition of the word contact. At 10.38 p.m., the Bismarck started shelling the destroyers as they were seeking out a weak spot. The third shot from the German battleship landed near the Polish destroyer ORP Puran. Still, the smaller Polish vessel came on. That is, until another shell landed close again, as she was 12,000 meters or 39,000 feet away. Vian ordered her back. No sense in losing a ship for a battle that was hopefully all but over. As the rest of the night went on, Vian's group harassed the Bismarck, using star shells to keep her in sight and firing 16 torpedoes as one might get lucky but none were. As nothing had improved for the German vessel, Luchens waited to launch one of his Arado 196 float planes. This was just after 5 a.m. He wanted the ship's war diary, footage of the fight with the hood, and other important papers to be taken safely away. But then the third shell that came from the Prince of Wales damaged the steam line of the aircraft catapult, so that was no longer an option. At 7.10 a.m., Luchin sent out another signal. Again, he had nothing to lose, to see if any U-boat could come in and pick up those documents. A signal was sent to U-556, but she was submerged and so missed the order. Not that it would have mattered, as she too was low on fuel and had to head home. As the sun continued to rise on May 27th, the King George V led the little formation into battle. 
Tovey's plan was to come right at the Bismarck, firing all the while, with the Rodney just off his port quarter. This would continue until the British vessels were about 15 kilometers or 8 nautical miles or 9.2 miles away. Then he would turn south so his ships were parallel to the Bismarck. At 8.43 a.m., Tovey's lookouts spotted the Bismarck. She was about 23,000 meters or 25,000 yards away. The British came on. Four minutes later, Rodney's two forward turrets of six 16-inch guns opened up. They were soon joined by the King George V's 14-inch guns. Luchens returned fire at 8.50 a.m., and her second salvo rocked the Rodney. But after that minor success, the Bismarck's ability to aim was reduced as her stability decreased, giving the unpredictable course changes of the damaged ship. Her captain, Schneider, was less able to calculate for range. Now that the Bismarck was less of a threat, the destroyers started to move in. The Norfolk and Dorsetshire closed in and let loose with their 8-inch guns. But it was the Rodney, with her 16-inch gun at 9.02 a.m., that hit the Bismarck's forward superstructure, the part of the ship that emerges from the deck. Instantly, hundreds of men, including Luchens and Commander Otto Lindemann of the Bismarck, were killed. This included the entire bridge staff as well, and the two forward turrets had just been taken out. Even worse, the main fire control director was destroyed, and it's this blast that also killed the ship's first gunnery officer, Aldebert Schneider. Then a second shell landed and disabled the forward main battery. Still, she would let loose one more shell at 9.27. Back to the Bismarck, trying to go out in a blaze of glory, the man in charge of the rear control station took over direct firing control of the rear turrets. He managed to get off three salvos before a shell took out his gun director. The officer had the guns fire independently, but this only lasted until 9.31, when all four battery turrets were put out of action. During this, the Bismarck had one good shot where a shell exploded 20 feet off Rodney's bow and crippled her starboard torpedo tube. But there had just been a moment that would have made Lord Nelson weep. Back at 9.10 a.m., the Rodney, just before being damaged, had launched six torpedoes from 6.2 miles away, 10 kilometers, while the Norfolk launched four just over nine miles away, 15 kilometers. All 10 torpedoes missed. At this point, Executive Officer Hans Ule took command of the Bismarck from his damage control center, but he was in control of nothing. His ship could no longer fight back. At 9.30, he decided to scuttle the Bismarck and order his men to abandon ship. There was no sense in getting more men killed only to then sink their own vessel. The men below decks were ordered to get out, while the engine room crews were ordered to open the watertight doors and to get ready for scuttling charges. Procedures demanded that as the lower deck men left their workstation, they were to leave the hatches open to speed up the process of the Bismarck going down, as the Germans did not want the British to step one foot on their ship.
and it would be the flooding that would increase the listing that had already started until the big girl turned completely over. And then came a mix-up. The chief engineering officer ordered his men to set the demolition charges with a nine-minute fuse, but his message could not get through, so he sent a messenger to confirm the order to scuttle, but the man never returned. So the chief engineer, Junak, readied the charges and told all those around him to abandon ship. They left the engine area at 10.10 a.m. This left Officer Ule to run around the ship ordering everyone to abandon. But then a shell from King George V hit the ship's aft canteen, killing him and about 100 others. By this time, the two British battleships moved in and kept firing, now at point-blank range. Tovey told his men to keep firing until the Germans struck their ensigns, lowered her flag, or it was obvious they were abandoning ship. And as the abandoning had been haphazard, this was not clear to the British. Now, all four British ships were firing, again, at point-blank range, but they could not sink the Bismarck. To be sure, she was a wreck from stem to stern and on fire. When it was all over, the British would fire just over 2,800 shells, of which 400 would hit the enemy ship. The damage was complete. The deaths kept going up. But besides her 20-degree list to port, the well-designed Bismarck refused to make for Davy Jones' locker. Then the Rodney fired two torpedoes from her port side tube, and one hit home. If true, this is the first and only time a battleship torpedoed another battleship. Finally, the scuttling charges went off at 10.20 a.m. Her list to port increased, and she started sinking slowly by the stern. As Tovey had rushed to get here at 10.20, he had the Dorsetshire fire two more torpedoes at her and ordered his battleships back to port. Like with the Rodney, one of the two torpedoes hit the target. This had been on the starboard side, so the Dorsetshire moved to the port side and fired one torpedo, which hit its target. And it was probably this last torpedo that exploded the Bismarck's port side superstructure, now below the waterline. At 10.40 a.m., the Bismarck disappeared from view. The battleship Bismarck, a worthy title, had a complement of 103 officers and 1,962 men normally. By now, some 400 of these were in the water. So the Dorsetshire and Maori moved in to help. But after only picking up 85 and 25 men respectively, the rescue was called off at 11.40, as a U-boat had been spotted in the area. Indeed, U-74 was on the scene and had watched the very end of the battle, if that word could be used. The next few days would see five more men being rescued, but one of them died on the way to Britain. Out of a crew of just over 2,200 men, there were more men on than usual. Only 114 survived. Next time, in the final episode of Operation Primrose, we'll see Bletchley come into her own and assist in a way that few could have imagined only a few years ago. Postscript, the wreck of Bismarck was discovered 
on June 8, 1989, by Robert Ballard, the oceanographer who found the Titanic. Bismarck was found to be resting on her keel at a depth of approximately 4,791 meters, or 15,719 feet, about 650 kilometers, 400 miles, west of Brest, France. The ship had struck an extinct underwater volcano, which rose some 1,000 meters, 3,300 feet, above the surrounding abysmal plain, triggering a 2-kilometer, or 1.2-mile, landslide. Bismarck slid down the mountain, coming to a stop about two-thirds of the way down. And finally, I don't know if this is good or not, but in 1959, a country singer named Johnny Horton released a song, Sink the Bismarck. Here it is for your listening pleasure, or not. I say ready. 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 Night came the British ship, the Hood, and every British seaman he knew and understood. They had to sink the Bismarck, the terror of the sea. Stop those guns as big as steers and those shells as big as trees. We find that German battleship that's making such a fuss. We gotta sink the Bismarck, cause the world depends on us. Hit the decks around and boys, just spin those guns around. When we find the Bismarck, we gotta cut her down. The hood found the Bismarck, and on that fatal day, the Bismarck started firing 15 miles away. We gotta sink the Bismarck, was the battle sound. But when the smoke had cleared away, the mighty hood went down. For six long days and weary nights, they tried to find her trail. Churchill told the people, put every ship for sail. Cause somewhere on that ocean, I know she's gotta be. We gotta sink the Bismarck to the bottom of the sea. They find that German battleship that's making such a fuss. We gotta sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us. They hit the decks are running, boys, and spin those guns around. When we find the Bismarck, we gotta cut her down. was gone the seventh day and they saw the morning sun ten hours away from homeland the bismarck made its run the admiral of the british fleet said turn those bows around we found that german battleship and we're gonna cut her down the british guns were aimed and the shells were coming fast the first shell hit the bismarck they knew she couldn't last that mighty German battleship is just a memory. Sink the Bismarck was the battle cry that shook the seven seas. We found that German battleship was making such a fuss. We had to sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us. We hit the deck running and we spun those guns around. Yeah, we found that mighty Bismarck and we had to cut her down. We found that German battleship was making such a fuss. We had to sink the Bismarck, cause the world 
All right, so there's the Thank song. Christ, that's over. Oh wow! Okay, oh, that's one. That's one uh, <laughs> comment from uh, an unconfirmed. That was the worst three minutes of my life. I'm so. Anyway, uh, Kiki and Sophie, you may remember from commercials and years gone by, are grown up now, and they absolutely loved that song. They were dancing the entire time, making incredibly positive gestures during the entire time. I was giving gestures, all right. Big fan. <laughs> this is a rated Pete. Never mind. Okay. Say goodbye, girls. Bye. No, no, no. When someone says, say goodbye, girls, you say... Say goodbye, girls. No, no, God, no. Shut up. <laughs> say, goodbye, girls. I just said that. No, no, but you... No. Goodbye, girls. Goodbye. That's better. <laughs>